0: What's up, crew? Welcome to Filming in Progress, the show that takes you backstage into the world of local businesses and the people who make them shine. Please welcome Ben Putt, co-founder of Monogram Coffee to the show. With an impressive track record of six Canadian National Barista Championship titles and multiple top five finishes at the World Barista Championship, Ben is a true leader in the coffee community. Ben, how'd you first get into the coffee scene?
1: Yeah, so I... Have a bit more of a random story so I think a lot of people have the, this bright moment when they pick the their career and the passion that they love and, and mine was much more passive so like many people in high school I needed a job and so I started working at a second cup and I was like okay at it I didn't really like coffee so I just like liked making coffee and then I am I'm so old that this is pre-YouTube um my boss one day came in and he he showed me this newspaper article that talked about latte art. It didn't show you how to do it. It didn't do anything. It just said that that someone could steam milk and pour the foam in such a way that it made a pattern. And I decided like, this is the thing that I'm gonna do. And so I tried for like weeks and months and I had like a, a pitcher that didn't even have a spout on it. And then eventually I, like, I had like a squiggle and it looked like a heart and I had like a, a film camera. So I would, I would take a picture of it and I was so proud of it. So I did that through high school and then I moved to Calgary and then I took my little photos and I, I attached them to my resume and, and applied at, at a bunch of coffee shops and started working at a coffee shop here. Again, really didn't like coffee. Mostly just liked making it. Now was on better equipment. I could pour latte art. Uh, and then after that, I started working for Phil and Sebastian, and that's where sort of the it clicked for me that coffee could taste better. Uh, and I think this is an interesting I think a lot of I think if you don't like coffee, it might not be that you don't like coffee. You just don't like. A certain style of coffee, and for me that was totally true. I didn't like the traditional style of coffee, and so when I tasted something like fruity, less bitter, it was it was really cool. And then after that, I sort of realized that coffee uh, has this opportunity to grant you almost like limitless knowledge. Like every field that you might be interested in, whether it's like scientific or more social, whether it's business, coffee has an avenue for all that. And so. It kind of happened slowly. I didn't have a, a spark or an aha moment, but over time I realized that I could continue to learn in this industry in any path that I wanted. And, after, and that was sort of in my mid twenties. And then I was sort of hooked in coffee and realized that this is the thing that I was gonna do forever.
0: Wow, that, that's, it's fascinating that you, know, you started at such a young age. Like have you, you've always been around coffee then.
1: So now, yeah, so I'm, I'm 38 and I started when I was 16. So we're at many, many years, 22 years of of just coffee.
0: Incredible. Did you ever think when you started at at Second Cup that you'd ever, you know, have your own cafes and roastery and that sort of thing?
1: No. um, I think when you're in coffee, and this is is partly the way we've created the role, is that barista and working in coffee is viewed as like an intermediate step, right? It's like the thing you do in high school. It's the thing you do in college, and then you grow up, and, and you go get like a, a, a real job. And so for me, it was never really in my mind. And I think I think it's getting better, but for a long time, I think people didn't see a path forward uh, in coffee. And this is why many people end up owning is because they want to stay in coffee and, and maybe they can't make the money just as a barista to continue. I think that's changing. Um, but for me, it was never really in my mind that I would own a, my own business. Um, but thankfully, it happened and, and I'm really thankful for that. I think the the thing that worried me the most early on was that owning a business would take me away from coffee. Um, because the moment you own a business, especially in the beginning, like you're the janitor and, and you're the repairman and, and you're all these you're all these things that aren't coffee. And so that worried me at first, but now owning the business, the the things that I thought I I didn't like actually really do like, like employing people trying to develop their careers and, and work with them has been really, really rewarding. So it was definitely unexpected. I, I was never the person that was like, you're gonna own a business. You know, the person where like, like when they're, they're like, by the time they're 16, they've owned like 10 lemonade stands and a dog walking business. Like that was not me. I, I, never, I never wanted to own my own business, but now that I'm here, like I'm, I'm so thankful to have done it.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really interesting because I think, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of people their entrepreneurial story is it, it stems when they were super young. They were doing, yeah. like you said, dog walking or, or whatever the case may be. Um, when you do you, you you mentioned the the narrative changing from kind of like a, a intermediate um, position or or kind of outlook on on coffee and, and working in coffee to what it is now, where you know I think I think it's. It, it's changed drastically, like the culture and that sort of thing, I've, from my perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you think is kind of pushing that, that change forward?
1: Yeah, I think I think COVID has helped with this as well too. I think that for a long time, the there was a really strict definition of what your job was, right? Like a job, you should have like a, a college degree behind it and it should fit this really strict criteria of like this nine to five thing and, and it should be in an office and at a desk. And I think over time, as people have worked in these jobs, and especially kind of with like the change and fallout of certain industries, that people have come back and realized that um, enjoying what you do is important. I still think you have, to, I, I don't think it can be, I don't think you can sacrifice having a good income just to pursue something you like. But I think that people have realized that there's more of a balance. And I also think that something that that especially coffee has done a good job of is sort of, telling the narrative that there's a lot of info behind there, that the people that are making their coffee actually have a skill set. I think that was lacking for a long time too, both for how baristas felt about themselves, but also how consumers felt about them, that it, I think for a long time, people thought you were just like hitting a button and then pouring it into a cup. And, and it is a lot more than that. And so I think this movement of people pursuing what they like to do, and also the view that there are lots of things to learn and that is actually like a developable skill set I think has changed that narrative. I hope that it continues to. I still think there's this weird there's this weird like ceiling where you want to get beyond barista. And at that point the positions narrow quite a bit. Like for example, we have cafes with many, many baristas in this roastery, we have only about four or five staff. And so to move to more of that like nine to five job is still a a hard transition period. Hopefully we figure that out, but we've made good steps, I think, in the last few years.
0: Awesome yeah similarly, I think there's been a shift from you know the the necessary caffeine in the morning to appreciating and and uh, building community over a over a cup of coffee or a meeting or whatever the case may be do you, has that been a shift is it you know to to the mass culture I think there's always been again from an outside perspective an appreciation for the specialty, but I think that's becoming more mass adopted with education and other things is that is that true
1: yeah i think I think partly is the movement away from it just being a vehicle of caffeine and and I think some of that is just that there's more good coffee out there I think that's a big thing is like in the past like I remember when I moved moved to Calgary I'm, I'm originally from Edmonton you, there was like a couple shops and and you had to kind of know that it was there it was like a thing and even at that point I don't think anyone had totally figured it out so sometimes your cup of coffee was good Sometimes it was bad, sometimes the service was good, sometimes it was bad. And so specialty coffee was this thing you had to to seek out and it was still very hit or miss. So I think now there's there's better coffee everywhere. Like even the fact that you go to a grocery store and there's like four or five local roasters that have bought good coffee and it's good. So it's more it's more accessible for everyone. I think the other thing too, though, is that specialty coffee like 10 or 15 years ago was sort of like like this and if you don't like it, like you can leave essentially. Like I remember the days where like lots of cafes like didn't have cream bars because they didn't want people to put like cream or milk in their coffee. They didn't have sugar or you had to ask for sugar or like I, 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 I was there too where I'm like, oh, like taste it before you put cream in because you're gonna love it. And, and so we really limited the amount of people we could serve coffee to even in, in sort of uh, roast levels and taste profiles that we really narrowed ourselves. And I think if you look at like other industries, like you go to a really good wine shop, they have like the super fancy, like niche, super acidic, like take the enamel off your teeth wines that some people love, but if that's not the only thing they do. And I think something that's helped is not only good coffee being everywhere, but also our approach to that good coffee being a lot more inclusive and just trying to to realize that 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 comforting coffee that people crave, we have an ability to make something similar. We're not gonna make the same cup of coffee as like your grandpa or grandma drank 50 years ago, but we can do something that like hits some of the same like memories for you.
0: Yeah. Do you find that transition requires just education? Like you were talking about how, um, you know, people are used to putting creamer and whatever the case may be into their coffees to just make it taste like whatever it was before. Do you, do you find there's education required there to kind of get people to try these things or is it just kind of like experimentation? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it, it's a little bit of both. I think now we're less, less interested in, in moving people from what they want. Um, if someone likes something, I think now we're more likely to say like, that's okay. Even if you look at the fact, how many specialty cafes now have multiple sweet drinks? Like different seasonals and so some of it is us moving towards them and i think some of it is just trying to create more welcoming environments i think this is something that has changed recently too i think like 10 years ago again the the focus was on the product it was like this this cup of coffee is what we do and that and that's all we do it was actually really fun in those days because you would just make coffee and, and everything else was like an afterthought like no food program Like, it was just like, you just make coffee. And now I think cafes have realized that it can't just be product alone. It has to be the experience around it. And I think that's made it easier to have those conversations because suddenly we've said, I would say not just Monogram, but so many cafes in Calgary have set it up that there's this warm, welcoming environment. And I think when you do that, there's a, a better level of trust and you're also coming in I think in the past it was really easy to feel foolish when you came into a shop like that. Like it still happens to me if I go into like a super niche store whether like it's food or clothing or you know where you feel like an outsider and you don't want to ask a question because you don't want to you don't want to look like you don't know. I think coffee did that for a long time and I think we're doing a better job now and it's easier to move someone if they don't feel embarrassed to ask a question or they don't feel ridiculed if you're trying to to shift them a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're talking about you know cafe surrounding and that sort of thing. I think that's so important and experience specifically. Um, you know, you're you're obviously a, a coffee roaster. You own cafes, that sort of thing. But um, it's not only the coffee that people come for, right? It's the experience. So how do you manage that? Um, like you know, building out your cafes and what do you look for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so there's two other owners in in Monogram, Justin and Jeremy, and something that we established very early on that has kind of been a guiding force of our company is this concept of, of wonder and warmth. Um, and so the wonder side is what we often talk about, and especially it's the thing that excites you, whether it's like you taste a coffee that tastes like fruit and you can't believe it, or you hear about a new pro- uh, processing method in coffee, or there's a new grinder, like the things that excite you, but we also acknowledge that there's the wa- the warmth side. And so the warmth side to us is all the nostalgic things that happen with coffee. Like, do you remember like, sipping your dad's coffee or something like that, or the smell or being in a coffee shop with that people that you, you like spending time with. And so that's been our approach is that whenever we're approaching spaces to, have, to try and have both of those things. So to make sure that the product is excit- can be exciting that if you're really into it, that's there, but if you wanna come in every single day and that's your spot, that it's really comfortable and approachable. And so trying to carry both those things is really difficult. But I think that's what's made it successful. And even if you think of like the people that come into a shop every single day, they don't necessarily always want to be like blown away by something new. Sometimes they just want the same comfortable experience again and again. And so us acknowledging that and trying to carry both of those concepts has really been successful.
0: Yeah, yeah, the consistency in the experience, but also the cup of coffee, obviously, I imagine is important. Mm-hmm. Um, Circling back on something you said earlier, you were talking about the idea of how you were you weren't sure if you wanted to move from a barista to a business owner, you know. How do you ensure that because I imagine for the reasons that you got into coffee in the first place, that those are important to uphold and, and keep your passion and that sort of thing. How do you make sure that you, you know, you wear you can wear both hats simultaneously
1: of the loving coffee and owning a business or,
0: or being a barista even like do you ever get behind the bar What does uh, that yeah, look yeah.
1: like Yeah, so for me I feel very fortunate the role that I'm in. So basically coming out of it, uh, I started the business with Justin and Jeremy. And and Justin and Jeremy were the people that I'm sure had like the lemonade stands and the dog walking business or so they they were really into business. And so that that helped for me because I always had someone that was pursuing the business side. So even when I maybe waffled and waned on 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 the owning a business side, they were right there. And so the for me, a big part of it is that just that trying to find that balance. Um, but having owners that you trust and work with has been really useful. I still get behind the bar to me the the ultimate draw for me is still coffee. So I I love owning the business, but ultimately like if coffee wasn't around, it would still be my thing. And so that always does pull me back to the bar. There's not enough there's not enough like money or businesses in the world that could keep me off of bar. So I'm not doing bar shifts all the time, but I'm constantly experimenting on the bar, I'm brewing our coffees to taste them. And so the balance for me it hasn't been that hard but part of that is having business partners that you that trust you to go and make coffee like it really i am very very fortunate like justin will like look at spreadsheets and look at like accounts receivable and accounts payable jeremy's like on marketing and trying to like figure out how to launch stuff and then like i'll roast coffee and and then brew it and and it works really well that way it's been a, a good approach but i definitely understand that i'm in a very fortunate situation
0: so uh, yeah i mean the the love for coffee obviously also brought you to competing was Mm. that something that started before monogram or you know during or after what did that look like
1: yeah so i have always been a competitive person uh i think it came out of so i was homeschooled literally my entire life and i think out of that i never like i look at my son he's in school now and, and he like he'll come back from something and he'll say like oh, I, I lost this race or this, this tug of war or something, and I won this one. And so like, when you're really young, you, you learn how that competitiveness, and even in school, like sometimes someone might get a better grade than you. Someone might not. I think growing up homeschool, I never had that. So I came out not super competitive because I had never been used to like being in a ranking. And so it's always been my nature to be competitive. And then I, when I was working at Phil and Sebastian, Phil competed and he needed someone to coach him, and ultimately I wasn't a very good coach, I was just kind of a good dishwasher, (laughs) Um, which, you know, it's an important role in competition, and after he competed, I'm like, this is the thing that, like, I think I I would be good at, I I should do it, and so I entered, you had to do, like, an in-house competition at Film Sebastian, I did it, I won the regional competition, it was in Alberta, and I went to nationals, like, you know, Full of hope and maybe slightly overconfident and I got like annihilated like I I didn't even make I didn't make finals which in Canada it's like a small country it's hard to win Canada but making finals there's like 12 baristas six people go to finals like a 50 50 shot so I got like destroyed kind of like went back home licked my wounds and then and then that was like 11 years ago and, and just continued to compete and so the next year I competed and I got second and I in, the, in in Canada that which isn't enough to get you to worlds you have to get first to go to worlds and then I'm like okay I'll compete again and, and I went back and, and then that year I was actually competing um, in Edmonton with a, and I was training with someone and the guy I trained with he beat me and so then I moved back to Calgary and then I trained with someone Jeremy who's my business partner and he beat me <laughs> and so basically anyone I trained with they would they would win and then I would lose and and then finally, uh, it would have been 2014. I won, went to my first Worlds, and then kind of the same thing that happened in my first nationals. I, I went in like, I didn't think I could win, but I, I went in confident and then, and made the semifinals round, but, but didn't make finals. And then like, and it's this thing that every time I got exposed to like the next level, I'm like, that's the thing I, that, I want to do next. So it was like, my goal is to win nationals and I won nationals and went to Worlds and I'm like, oh, and then it just kept going. And, and over the years, I've now been to Worlds a number of times. I, I've got uh, third in the world twice, uh, fourth once and fifth once. And I'm still sort of hooked on it. I'm still always trying to, to get back there. And it's, it's a ton of work. But to me, that's sort of the thing that really pushes me now. Not, not the competition side, but basically to compete, you have to know. A little bit about everything in coffee. If you're doing it on your own, some people hire like a, a large team. We've always had small teams, though. So I have to like go and source coffee. I have to figure out how to roast it. I'm constantly working on new ways to brew it, or what's the new scientific discovery that will that will move the needle. And so, literally, uh, 24/7, 365 days a year, I'm thinking about comp. It it never stops. And so it's maybe like a bad obsession coming from. My homeschooling years but uh it's been super fun
0: yeah no doubt do you think that will do you have like a besides um like do do you have an end date in mind is that are you going to continue to compete for as long as you can or what's what's the plan
1: so (laughs) your timing's actually really funny i did have an end date in mind so the the thing for me that i've always done in, in coffee is the thing that i the cool thing about competition is you have a set amount of drinks to make you have 15 minutes but you can literally talk about anything you want it should be about coffee if you if you want to do well, um, but it allows people to put like a personal stamp on it. Like what makes what makes you tick in coffee, or what do you care about, and it really reflects people's personalities. And the big thing for me has always been uh, trying to find new things to innovate in new ways, like show new concepts, new techniques. And so I I planned enough that I had like a certain amount of new techniques that were sort of under my hat that I revealed, and last year was supposed to be like the last year. I had a bunch of stuff that I shared. I was really excited. I go to Worlds, I, I passed the first round. It went really well. I I think my coffee tastes great. And then there's there's two more rounds. So it's like a semifinals round and there's a finals round. And the way the way the rules work is they provide like an espresso machine, a grinder. If those break, they'll fix them for you. They'll call time because they provided that equipment. But if your equipment breaks, they, it doesn't matter. You brought it, it breaks. And so in that one round, I had six pieces of equipment that I brought and five of them broke or didn't work or malfunctioned. And so that was supposed to be like the last year, but it after like 11 years of competing, it really felt weird. Like that's not the way you wanna go out, right? Like no one wants to go out that way. And so like I finished and then I had like a, not an existential crisis, but you know, borderline, like this has been my whole, my whole life for many, many years. It's like when my family doesn't do vacations, they go, they go to comp with me, like like it's it's basically everything. And so, went back and really struggled with like if that was the last innovation that I wanted to share, do I go back just for the sake of going back when I don't when the thing that I think makes me unique in competition I don't have anymore. And and so sort of thought about it for a while, and then really randomly, I I came up with like two. One idea was inspired by this this scientist that's working on stuff, and the other idea was something that I. I don't think anyone has discovered yet. In the, the, the National Brista Championships in two months, so you'll you'll get to know about it then. But basically, in the past few months, I've discovered new techniques that I had never thought about before. So I'm going back. This should be like the last run. Even if I, if I don't make it out of nationals, that's fine. I can, I, just, I can just be done. But my involvement with comp can continue because we also have been coaching bristas. So I've coached bristas in the past, and then this year actually we're coaching some international baristas as well. We're coaching Singapore and Mexico. So yeah, I will retire from like the competitor side, but the comp side will always sort of be be part of me.
0: Unless you find something new again.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but like, it's this weird thing. There's only so many things you can do with coffee. And, and I think one of the fun things that, I, that I'm, I'm proud of is that everything I've done uh like you could go on amazon spend a couple hundred bucks and do the exact same thing because the comps have got to a level where sometimes it's like someone that has a fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment on stage or they did a big research grant with a a university literally everything we've done has either happened like on that bar or in my kitchen um which i think to me is the really interesting thing where it's like i just came up with this you should try it and you totally can like go home and and do this and so it does limit how much you can do though because eventually you'll cap out on ideas
0: yeah awesome well hopefully not maybe you never know <laughs> yeah right? yeah I know <laughs> I
1: always tell myself this is the last one and then and then your brain starts starts churning a bit but I I think as long as this one even if I, again if I don't make it at of nationals so as long as I can finish this one well I'm, I'm really proud of these ideas and then after that if I had ideas I would probably just pass them to someone that I was coaching awesome yeah,
0: you uh, you talked in there too about how, and I've I've had the I've been fortunate enough to see kind of to watch some of the competitions, and um, it's really cool that I think in the barista championships, there's there's you get to show personality, right? You, like you said, it's not just about how the drink tastes, but you're you're it's kind of like a show. You're talking, you're you're expressing yourself, etc., and showing your personality, which I think pairs itself to you know, baristas in the cafe, you know, there's mm-hmm. a couple minute period where you're waiting for a drink. And I think that's so important. Um, you also talked about coaching. So give, a, give me a little bit of a breakdown on how that works and, and what, what goes into coaching versus competing.
1: Yeah, so the the barista competitions for a long time were not that established. And so I, I have a bit of an advantage that I entered the competitions in the really early years where you could kind of fumble about a bit more and still do well. Like, for example, the first year, I entered I won my regionals. I didn't know what I was doing but I made decent coffee and served it. And now there are like there are massive rules documents. There's lots of like unknown rules that are that are in there but not really in there and so it's a bit more of like an inside baseball game where you have to know the rules. And since that time the competition also grown in in stature. So when you win there's no monetary prize but when you win like you're talking about like consulting gigs coaching, uh, endorsement. Like there's actually endorsements. Breistas aren't famous here, but if you go overseas, like you become quite a bit more famous. And so, and like the roaster, the farmer, there's a lot of, of stakes in the game if you can win. And so basically what happened before where it would be like one person competing, maybe like someone else is helping them has grown. So now there are actually teams. It's kind of like, it's almost like F1 or something like, where you have like a figurehead that's doing something, but you have a massive team that's helping you. So you might need a roaster or someone that sourced your coffee. You might have someone that tastes with you. You might even have someone that literally is just in charge of like setting up your cart, like polishing your glasses, all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, to put all that all together, you typically have a coach and a coach can take many roles. Maybe they are more just like you're for me, I'm like quite disorganized. And so uh, the person that's coached me in recent years is Jill. She works for for Monogram like. She's like a great taster, really great ideas, but also like she can focus, focus me. But what's really taken off is this, this coach that can f- fill the gaps in where your skill set might might lack or things you need support with, or they have a lot of experience. But what's happened is it's become like a global phenomenon that there are these people in the world that you know are like the coach that you hire that will train you, that will help you put your best foot forward. A big thing too is each country only gets to send one person. So a lot of these competitors, when they go to Worlds, like for me, it took five years to get to Worlds. Some people, it took 10 years before they get to Worlds. So when they get that chance, they want to hire someone that will guide them through that experience. Because also, the change from nationals to Worlds is huge. I, I compare it to like currency conversion. Like what scores really well in Canada with our dollar <laughs> might not do as well. Like something that you think you serve a really good espresso here, a coach might taste it and be like, this is good for Canada, but, on the world stage, you need to adjust and adapt. And so when you hire a coach, a good coach will help you translate that to the world stage. And they know sort of the ins and outs. But it's actually become like a full industry. There are people where a large, we mostly do it just as we care about it and it's interesting, but there are people that a large amount of their their income. Canada is actually really unique that we're coaching people, but Rosso is also coaching people as well. Uh, Cole is a multiple champion in Canada. He's done really well at Worlds, and then uh, this last year, he actually coached the, the person that won Worlds, and so super proud that Canada's like, we're good competitors and we're also good coaches, but it's this really, it's a really fun way you can be involved in competition, um, and it's such a, a critical role.
0: Yeah, you, you talked about the idea of Canada being different from from like a taste perspective potentially uh, than the, the rest of the world, and also that, you know, uh, Canadian braces aren't aren't like celebrities here, but they might be elsewhere, right? Why do you think that is?
1: Canada is a weird a weird market for coffee. I think um, we consume a lot. I think one of the things that made it hard is to me, Tim Hortons has been a a, a good and a bad thing. Like I, I actually think it's cool that we have this this national chain that that we can be proud of, but it really has changed sort of the market, especially coffee. So I don't know if it's still true, but at one point, Tim Hortons was about seven to eight out of 10 cups of coffee served in a retail environment in Canada were Tim Hortons. So we're talking like 70, 80% market share. So then, and then you have Starbucks, which is probably, I don't know, another 10 or 15%. And then specialty might, it's just this tiny little sliver. And I think that's made it harder to to develop that market. If you look at Australia, which is very similar to Canada, right, both Commonwealth, like similar demographics, they have almost no, they don't have a, a Tim Hortons equivalent. And so specialty is blown up because the market's sort of wide open for them. So I think that's part of it. It's just sort of the way we've grown up. I think it's an interesting thing because I think we will continue to grow. So in many ways, I don't think specialty has reached capacity at all. Like there's lots to do in Canada, but then I think Canada is so far (laughs) removed from anything. Like the States has got their, it's like a powerhouse. They've got their own thing going on. They have good roasters, good good, uh, cafes. And so really for us, when you look at where you can export to or where you can have business, it really changes it. So I think the growth trajectory of roasters is harder. Like I know lots of roasters in in Europe where like, if you think of the EU, it's almost a billion people that they can just, they can all be your customer. In Canada, you got like 40 million, maybe you can get into the States and that will open you up to like another 400, but it's really, really hard. So those things I think have made it harder for especially coffee to develop. But I think that it's also, I think, created a challenge for people where this smaller market, like, especially if you look at Calgary, there are great roasters and great baristas here. And I think that it's this close contact with them has made us better because everyone's sort of pushing forward. And you know, you know everyone, especially coffee in Canada, and it, I think it, it's both like our strength and our weakness a little bit.
0: Yeah, t- totally. I see it, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, we're, we're a small, not a small competitor, cause you know, we're, we're on the world stage all the time, like yeah. you mentioned, but um, a small population compared to the rest of the world. But here we are, you know, getting first, second, third, coaching first, all these different things, right? It's super fascinating. Um, I'm curious, wh- what, what made you take the step from, from working in coffee to saying, I'm, I'm gonna do that on my own? Or with sorry with my business partners.
1: Yeah, so f- for me, it was not a light decision because obviously when you when you start a business, you take on a ton of risk. Because if you're if you want to switch careers and you just work for a shop, that's one thing. If you decide you want to be in business anymore, like I don't know, it's it's really hard. And so for me, a, a big thing was finding the right people people that I thought uh, I could work really well with. So Justin and Jeremy, we we knew each other, we had worked together, and so there was. A lot of trust there already established where I, I felt like they had the same drive. A big thing for me was I think the longer you work in any field, you start to develop your own opinions, your own vision for what you think, whatever you care about could be or should be. And I, at that point, we had all sort of landed on the same sort of values on, especially that wonder warmth thing that, of what coffee could be. And eventually you should just go and do that, I think. Especially if you have like a, a, a concrete vision and we we're still in that and i think we're still in a bit of that stage where to to actually have a, a career with some longevity you either have to find the larger larger companies where you can sort of move up and be like a green buyer or a roaster or like a manager and that works well or you have to do this or you have to go and start a shop and and i think this was about 10 years ago we're coming up on 10 years uh, this fall 10 years ago it was still in that that phase where it's like you either need to find the next thing, or or stunt your career a little bit, or go start your own thing, and, and so we—that's sort of where we landed. So it was a bit of like a bit of dreaming and, and desire, and a little bit of practicality, which I think is probably a good mix. I don't think you want all of one or all of the other.
0: Right, right, yeah, and, and probably a, a leg of competition too, right? You 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 said you've been competitive since you were young, and, and just being able to make something better every day.
1: Yeah, I, I think putting your own stamp on it is a huge thing. I also think anyone going into business, I, I don't know how to have done it without partners. Um, and not just, not just workload, not just like like balancing it, but a huge thing I think that has kept us on the rails is the early days where you're like terrified and unsure. You have someone that's like equally terrified. And so I think that really bonded us together. I don't think when you first start a business, my experience was that everyone, I think people see something in you that you might not see. So when I went and started a business, all my friends and my immediate family and, and my wife, they're like, oh, you're going to do great. And I'm like, well, who, who, like, who knows? And, and so I think having partners is nice because they share the exact same experience with you and you can grow and build together. And I think it would have been really hard if I had been alone and alone processing all these emotions that are really unique to starting a business without having them along and also kind of terrified.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Finding comfort and discomfort together, right? Because you're experiencing the same. And, and the complementing skill sets, I imagine, too, right? Like that you part's been about, huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So like we didn't really know this early on. This is the other thing I think like you think you know know someone because I had known them for years. But then you don't really know someone until like you own a business together. And, and But what really emerged out of it is those skill sets. So we all shared a common a common love of coffee but as time has gone on we've really realized that the thankfully like the three of us all sort of in, uh, enjoy different parts of the business so Justin really likes building businesses he cares about like starting projects and executing things um he's he's good with negotiating and all that these are all things I like I I can do and I hate doing them Jeremy like loves brand um and this is something that I think every you can have a great product, but you really need to be able to, able to tell the story about it. Jeremy has a like really good idea of brand and what he wants it to be. And that basically opens me up to just do coffee stuff, which is, I I, I say it like in jest, but I, I feel like I did really, I have the best job and and I just don't want them to know that I, how good I've got it. <laughs> Uh, it, having three founders can is
0: obviously a blessing, but it can. It, it, has it ever been a curse as well? Like whether it where there may be disagreements from a vision perspective or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I think we got lucky. So I think I've seen lots of times where you have three founders and two of them are, are closer. Sometimes it's like, I've never seen a successful three-part business where two of them are married and one isn't. So maybe that's a warning to everyone. Maybe they're out there, but I think, I think if, if two of them are, are quite a bit closer, you never know, did the meeting you just have end? Especially if, if, they're, if they're a couple, the meeting that you just had between the three of you, it, it didn't end, they, they went home and it continued. And so I think one of the advantages with three is that we all are equal friends. So like, we're very, very close. We're not like constantly together, but we, we are at the same sort of friendship level. So I never feel like if I disagree with Justin or Jeremy that they're gonna gang up. Uh, Having three has also been amazing in that there is never uh, a deadlock. So if things get like really, we can't decide on something, we just put it to a vote. You never feel like, and you typically, you win about 66% of the time. Like it really has worked out that way for thankfully. So I never feel like if there's something I really care about, we vote and I lose. I don't worry about it as much because I'm like, you know what? Maybe the next vote will be on my side. So Having three, I think, has been easier than if it was two because there's always just if we don't agree on something, it goes to a vote and it's just done. And so it's less debating, less argument. But I think the key that key piece is like three makes it easy to vote and three where like all the members have a similar relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you mentioned trust too which is a key 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 for any relationship really but especially between three but I love that I love that about three um you often uh, often hear a lot more complications with more people involved but I think that sounds like a perfect. I think
1: three is the magic number like two you're just gonna battle battle once you get over three I think the thing I I the issue I see over three is the income of the business to, to be able to have three or four or five owners actually make a career out of it you have to be doing some some serious numbers uh, even at 3 like you think I, when i look at like some coffee shops with one owner like you can own a coffee shop just on your own you can do most of the work and have a good career but once you add two or three that's when the business really has to start to grow in order to to have a career for that many owners four or five owners it's, it's going to take a lot of revenue
0: yeah yeah for sure um,
1: speaking to uh, sourcing, you touched a, l- a little bit on
0: there. I think you know it's come to the forefront that there's there's a lot there's a lot of ethical concerns with sourcing in the past with coffee, and obviously a lot of specialties are, are kind of flipping that script. Talk to me about kind of your um, uh, what you look for when you're you're looking for partners and you're sourcing beans that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that this might be the hardest part of it, and not just the quality not just the quality thing, but the the transparency side of it, because specialty, no one has totally figured it out yet. Because um, basically what, in the past you had these certifications around fair trade and organic, and there are some, some complaints against them that they don't maybe they don't pay enough, maybe they don't take everything into consideration. And so basically what every coffee company has done is they've gone and said, we don't like this, and here, here's the new shiny model. This is the thing that's gonna work. But the problem behind it is other than some large companies that have hired like auditors, it is fully based on the consumer's trust of that roaster, right? So if you go and look at specialty coffee companies, every single one will be like direct trade. We pay a great price and we try and make sure we're sustainable. And and I actually believe all of them are trying and we are actively trying but we also hit the mark with some more than others. And it's something we're always trying to figure out. And it's a really hard thing to try and figure out, like how, where do we put our money? How do we find out the, cause again, like also you have to trust the producer that they're doing the right things. And so it's actually really, really hard. And it's something we're constantly trying to work at and adjust every, um, every country is different too. Like some countries, the, it's much easier to see where it's going. You're paying higher prices. So it's easier to adjust those things. It is a constant thing. I think a lot of it comes down to making sure that you trust your partners there. So like a big thing as we visit farms, we try and, and see where, where things are going. Um, a big thing that is also coming up is we often talk about producers. This has been an easy thing for people to think about the farm owner um, and trying to help them out. But there's a whole level of employee underneath that, right? Pickers and people working in the mills and stuff like that. That I still think it is hard to make sure that dollars are going to the the right areas there. And so I do not think Monogram has it fully figured out, but we are making like honest commitments to trying. A big thing for us that we've done with a bunch of producers is committing to their coffee no matter what. This is a, a huge thing in specialty where if you're just pursuing quality, um, there are some, there's some times that you might, a roaster might drop a producer because they had a down year, a couple down years for us. We'll commit to that coffee. We'll say, we'll buy your whole harvest. If you have a down year, we're going to give you feedback. We're going to say like, it dropped a point. Let's figure out why, but we're going to be committed to that. Cause I think that's sort of the thing that is sometimes missing a producer might produce like a hundred, let's say they produce a hundred bags of coffee and 20 of them are good. The other 80, they're not going to get a great price for So to me, specialty. Long story short, I think we're in this weird phase where, like, specialty has identified and consumers are, have identified, which I think is great, that we need to have more transparency. We need to care about, like, the sustainability of how we produce coffee. We need to make sure that everyone in the value chain is taken care of. But specialty hasn't figured out how to do that in a way that it's actually verifiable, um, especially to everyone's adopted the same language. And so, for consumers, I think the key is, like, try and find roasters that you trust. It's a hard thing to do. Like you can ask some pointed questions, but it really is going to come down to, to what they say. Even like a lot of the dollar figure stuff that they post when it's like, we paid this much more than the market. Sometimes the market's really low. And so that that number may or may not mean much. Is there a, a middleman in the, in the in there that's taking some of that? And then it also comes down to like trusting the people that are importing it and making sure. So it is, a. Uh, if anyone says they have it figured out, I probably don't believe them. But if someone says they're making an honest try, then I, I do think they're they're probably headed in the right direction.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So, so it's really up to the 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 producer and the the coffee company to kind of, you know, run that narrative narrative as far as transparency is concerned. But also the consumer to do their due diligence and maybe just not trust what's on the bag. Or
1: yeah, like I don't. I always try and put myself in a consumer's shoes to figure out like how to actually verify that. So something that we're doing, trying to do more is, um, so there's a coffee we just bought in Bolivia where we actually get to see the full contract. So we, we can vouch from here all the way back to the producer. And this is a smallholder producer where they actually, they are the picker as well. So the, the, in terms of like where it sits in the chain, they're at the bottom of the chain. We can actually fully see that one. So we're, the movement has gotten better. For a long time, that sort of transparency was really hard to get because, you know, it is, you think of a business and, and I think this is fairly unique to coffee where people actually want to see your full cost of goods, like, and some clothing companies have done that, but no other comp, other businesses, you don't actually expect like, oh, I just bought a car. Tell me like what each part costs, I'm going to add it all up and, and I'll know what the value is. Like, it's this unique thing, I think in, in, in uh, products that have like a sense of place. Where like this is from this person in this place. That's when we want to see that, and so it's this it's this unique thing where I think people some businesses are still really unfamiliar with like oh you actually want to see what I paid for it and they're worried that you might say oh I don't want to pay that much. But sometimes when we ask like what did we you pay for it, it's just like okay I understand why why it costs this much. I'm, I'm fine paying that. So on the coffee side, it's getting better on the consumer side. I still think it's tricky. So like it it could be a big one. There's one way that guaranteed that you know it's not that ethical is if it's really cheap. Like like to be honest, if the coffee is really cheap, you can't, like the money could go many, many places. You could have like a good price for coffee and maybe it doesn't go to like people. But if you don't have a good price for coffee, you know that it didn't go anywhere. So I think what part of it is just paying good prices for coffee that will usually move in the right direction. I think um, smaller local roasters, I think, especially in Calgary, the the people here that are roasting coffee and saying that they're doing sustainable things, uh, like I'm more than happy to vouch for all of them that they are. I know that they're doing the right things and trying the right things. So I think, especially on the local side, I think it's easier to sort of vet that out, but I do think it's hard. I think this is all all products now. Like if you read about like a big one for me is like a uh, they say that like lots of olive oil actually doesn't contain like full olive oil. It's like a mixture of a lot. And I always wonder when I buy a bottle, like how do I know? And the answer sometimes is you don't. And you, and so this, this trust thing is really huge, but I do think that Calgary and, and a lot of Canada, the, the companies that are roasting coffee are doing a good job and trying, but I only say that because I'm I'm behind the curtain a bit and I can see it. And so I, I don't actually have easy answers for consumers. I think this is the, the next big movement in and I think all the things that we eat and consume is trying to figure out what what that transparency really looks like in a really tangible way, because I can't expect a consumer to go on the Internet and and research every like, oh, like you, they bought from this farm. Let's see, like what's happening with that farm or like because I don't do that with every product that I consume. And so moving forward, I don't know what the answer is, but I I do think it's a big question that we we do need to answer is like, how do we how do we say that we're transparent and sustainable and do it in a meaningful way that just isn't buzzwords?
0: Right. And the certifications that do exist, they're they're kind of sporadic and few and far between and potentially corrupt in themselves.
1: Yeah, they're tricky. So a lot of them is like, they cost money. So a lot of people uh, don't want to pay that money up front because it's expensive. Sometimes it has to go with the cooperative. And so the cooperative controls that certification. Some of the problems too is that they pay more but not quite enough. Um, a lot of them aren't connected to quality. Um, And I think those ones are actually interesting because to me, one of the issues with specialty coffee is that if you think about how many, how much coffee there's in the world, it's a lot. And then how much of the coffee is good, like really good. It's really small. And so specialty often gets trotted out as like, this is the fix, this is the thing that's gonna do it. But really there's a lot of people that are gonna get left behind on that. And so uh, to me, the certifications that aren't connected to quality, maybe specialty puts them down, but they also fit like a really niche role where like there are some regions where I think it's really hard to grow good coffee. And I I can't blame the people that just live there and like that's their livelihood, that's what they're gonna do. But at the same time, I'm likely never gonna buy coffee from there Um, be just because it doesn't fit the profile. Maybe they're literally in an area where I, until like there's a lot of good work on like new varieties of coffee that might be able to produce quality coffee in these regions. But until that happens, I, I won't be their customer. And so I think the certifications, for me, I, I, maybe they don't work for specialty, but they could be really interesting for the, the people that aren't able to produce specialty coffee and increase their price in that way. So to me, the a lot of the certifications, they work, but they don't work for for specialty quite as well. And then there's often just like weird rules, like rules about organics that they they, they can't go in certain areas. And, and so it, it's really quite complicated. There's a lot of bureaucracy, which I get because they want to protect it. But it does make it hard to sort of get to the point and, and do good work.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, it's, it's funny, on social media and that sort of thing, you often see, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before too, but there's a shift where people are appreciating great coffee, right? And appreciating what's behind it and the work that goes behind it and all the people and everything like that. Um, and then you see the occasional post that it's like, oh, $5 for a cup of coffee. How do you manage people like that? Is that something that you, you just kind of focus on the education or, or it, is it maybe that's just not the right customer? How do, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I think... It's always tricky. I I think that there are some people that they they don't see the value, and and I think that's okay, um. But but at the same time, you want to try and win them over, and you want to try and explain. And I and I think the the biggest thing is, it's hard to do that stuff over social media. So we have had some. It has. It's been a long time now, but we had a post once where someone's like, "How can you pay for this much for a coffee? It's ridiculous. Um, like you must be you must be scamming us or or something like that." And so. It's hard to do it over over Instagram. Uh, I think a big thing for us is, again, coming down to that narrative of like trying to share like why that cup of coffee costs that much that much money, like making sure that people can see the story behind it. I even think when people, I think it's better now, but for a long time, I don't think people realized how much manual labor goes in the coffee. That when you drink coffee, like if it's high quality coffee, it's, it's probably picked by hand. They sorted it by hand. Like they carried like this massive sack of coffee down. and so. I don't think you'll ever like flip someone on Instagram, but I do think as we do a better job explaining like how much work, how much attention, um, and just the the level of quality difference between that cup of coffee that costs $5 and... And the other thing too that, that I always come back to is like, you think about the best of something in the world. So like, if I told you like, go out and come back with like the, the best bottle of wine you can find in Calgary and the best like, I don't know, like chocolate or something like that, or cheese. You'd come back with something very, very expensive. And the thing for me with coffee is you, you can have like one of the best cups of coffee in the world for like seven bucks. It's expensive. Like, like I, I, something that baristas never appreciate is like, I forget how much coffee costs if you drink it every single day. Like a, a five to $8 cup of coffee every single day adds up. I just drink coffee here, it's free. And so I, I don't, I, to be fair, I don't always appreciate how expensive coffee can be but if you think about the fact that like we have a coffee that is uh it's from bolivia it's one of the highest farms in the world um it's many people argue it's the best coffee in the world you can drink it for eight dollars like there's no other food where literally one of the best in the world is going to get you to the table for like under i don't know 50 100 dollars. and so to me there's this weird thing where coffee is getting more expensive like a lot of it's gone up and some of it is to to put money in the right places and and some of it you know is logistics inflation all that but at the same time like in comparison to other quality products it's still really affordable and approachable and we still i think cafes have a duty to make sure that it's still approachable that like we have those options that are a bit more affordable um but ultimately it's expensive but it's like the cheapest luxury out there
0: awesome yeah i've i've Never, never heard that, but that makes perfect sense. You know, it's it, the 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 quality speaks for itself, but still in a in an approachable price, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, we talked a little bit off camera about uh, comp- the competition landscape in coffee, and and obviously a little bit as well about kind of the the small amount of people that are doing specialty in Canada, in Calgary, etc. Um, what does that what does that competition landscape look like for you?
1: Yeah, I think it's sort of, especially in Calgary, it's kind of the secret sauce a bit. So if you look at the Historically, like using competition, like the Brista competition as a metric, since uh, 2014, maybe, yeah, 2014, every barista champion is from Calgary, every Canadian Brista champion. And it, it, it's been me a handful of times, it's been Cole a handful of times, it's, it's been Jill. And I think really what comes out of that is you have these, these groups of roasteries. So you have like Phil and Sebastian, Rosso, Fratello, Hide and Seek, Um, you have these and there's a whole bunch of others and you're always like tasting other people's product. You're trying to like, make sure you'll taste something. Oh, that was really good. I need, I need to step up my game. And because the community is small, uh, we're always pushing each other. And I think it's this really interesting blend Uh, to me. There's like a, it's a really fine mix where if you, you have to be a bit competitive because if you're not competitive, you're not going to try and improve and, and and best to the other person. Cause ultimately like that, that's part of it. But if you're, but you also have to be friendly, right? Like you wanna, to me, coffee has this interesting mix of competition and community that we're always trying to find the balance of. Um, like we spoke earlier. I think that the beer scene is like very, very friendly. I think like I've, I've met some brewers where I see them talk, they'll fully share recipes. I would love to get more. We're not, coffee's not quite at that point. Like we're still, private about some things. I think we're really friendly though and I think that blend of friendliness and competition is what has made Calgary so special where like I really like Cole and Dave but at the same time like I'm tasting their product and then trying to figure out like where do we sit and like what can we do to to make sure that we're always like competitive with other people out there.
0: Yeah, that I think that friendly competition is is something that's so important. You know, you can you can see each other on the street and be friends or go for a beer, whatever the case may be. But also, you know, you're like, oh, how can I make it better, right? That's, totally. Yeah, that's so important, and I think that's something that's come that's been increasingly so in business in general, um, especially in Calgary. Calgary's just so cohesive, or um, so conducive, sorry, to to you know collaboration and that sort of thing. It's awesome. A,
1: a good example, like Cole. Cole competed for many many years before he won, but. Canada had got so good at competition and we had always tried to one-up each other that Cole went to to Worlds and the very first year he went to Worlds he's finaled like which very very few people do and which shows that like the the community that we had built of that competition like he went in already like tuned to to crush it yeah awesome we, we talked about how
0: coffee is an experience, you know, it's, it's, it's a product, but it, 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 it is an experience ultimately, right? From the cafe design and, and that sort of thing to the actual cup itself. Um, when you are dealing with people that, that represent your organization, your baristas, that sort of thing, it's so important that that micro uh, interaction that you have with them is, is elevated, right? How do you attract great people?
1: That is the, that's really hard. And I think Especially after COVID, I think a lot of people wanted to change industries. And so I think across the board, a lot of people moved jobs. And so we still, we've retained a lot of people. Like we have two employees that have been almost since day one. So like a few months after we hit 10, they will hit 10. Um, And I think the early days of the company, it was a lot easier to attract people because we worked in the shops. So you would come, uh, if you worked for Monogram, I might be on till and you were making coffee. And, and so people were naturally drawn because you get could get to work with the owners and, and you could learn a lot and it was a really fast environment. I think the the key for us now is trying to create, I think the cafes are not just created for the customer experience, they're created for the, the barista's experience. And so trying to create environments that are welcoming. Um, this is something we're constantly trying to work at. We for sure haven't perfected it, but I think the team that manages the the cafes is doing a good job where you try and create an environment where people are drawn. Like if you, have, if you have all friendly baristas that are, maybe they're not extroverts, but they make a conscious effort to be kind and attentive. And someone comes in and they are looking for a job, that's a place they're gonna to wanna to work. And, and I think, especially when I look at the old style of cafes, it was like kind of uptight, like hipster dudes that thought they knew everything. And what kind of person did that attract? <laughs> to do is the think they and, and so I think this is the hard thing with culture so the moment it goes off the rails it that cycle will will perpetuate itself because you've headed in that direction those are the type of people you'll attract but on the flip side if you can if you can correct your culture and this is something we're constantly working on it will also sort of self-replicate that if if you have good people they will attract other good people um, but the other thing that I find really hard and and we're constantly trying to find the needle on is to find that balance between like working in coffee, you have to have a passion and love for coffee, but you also have to have a passion and love for people. And this is the thing we've constantly debated and and sometimes argued about: is which which one do you favor? Because sometimes you have to make that call. And for a long time, you'll see a lot of owners say, "You can you can teach coffee, but you can't teach like kindness." And I agree with I agree with they can't teach like that kindness part. But sometimes I also feel like you can't always teach coffee. Where like do you have to care about coffee? I, if you don't care about coffee and like you've been exposed to specialty, you, you've you seen the chain, you know what's, what we're trying to do and it's still not your thing, then it, it never will be. And so this is the thing I think we're constantly trying to figure out is where is that needle line? When you meet someone, you're trying to figure out like how much of this, each strength that you have. And you don't have to have, you don't have to be perfect. Like we, I think, I think another thing in business is that has changed is the idea, especially in coffee, like maybe other industries were ahead of us where we realize that you might not be fully formed where like like i think this is one of our 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 values is stewardship and so trying to realize that if you take someone they might not be perfect they might have to learn things and and trying to work with them so a big thing that has changed for us especially as we've grown in the past you would get a barista that had experience and they kind of knew the game and they could they had a great skill set and you didn't have to work on them much and i think now because we have more cafes because there's, there's lots of shops where baristas can work and a lot of our baristas are now not behind the bar anymore, that the idea of developing and stewarding people is more important. So it, it's not always finding that perfect employee, it's finding like the person you see potential in and you can work with them and, and bring them up.
0: Love it, love it. And that probably mitigates your issue that you talked about earlier, which which is kind of the transition aspect, right? If, you, if you're willing to put in the time and coach this person and help them up through the industry, then it's gonna be long-term as well. Yeah um it's clear that you're passionate about both coffee why you started and that sort of thing and people i'm curious as to where your fulfillment comes from on a daily basis and what you do
1: oh that's a great question it comes from from many many forms i i think the so again like not wanting to own a business because the the people side sort of intimidated me it has become more of a a constant joy for me i think managing people is really hard because you can definitely screw up. And if you screw up, like you, you legitimately hurt people. They, you might have the best intentions but you might. So there's a ton of risk there, but I think like right now we have a, a team, our leadership teams in the office right now having a meeting. Getting to hang out with those people is like really, really meaningful and rewarding. And I find that huge. Um, I'm, in, I'm a bit interesting in the sense that I actually don't drink coffee every day. So for me, the, the rewarding coffee side is when I find like a perfect cup of coffee. And so like that is also really inspiring to me. And then the bigger thing too is like this community here that I'm really proud of that we've built, I feel it globally too. So I travel a lot for for competitions and consulting and buying. And I've really created uh, a network of friends of people that I really care about. And so I never really thought that would happen that like I would have a community of people in a company that I own, but then a global community of people that like know my family and know my kids and, and I message and talk to every day. And so the things that have really been rewarding for me is the coffee side for sure, but like there's something about like human connection that I I don't really think you can top.
0: Awesome. See so you've got you've got the Canadian championships coming up, correct? What else is next? What's what's coming up?
1: This this is a a whirlwind year. Again, we we were talking earlier and I started adding up the days that I might be gone before July and I got to 50 and then I'm like, okay, I need to figure out what I'm going to chop so my kids still remember my name. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in two weeks is actually the brewing competition. So there's like a, there's a bunch of different competitions in coffee. There's uh, the ones at Canada There's a lot is barista, which is like espresso based drinks, but there's also filter brewing. So again, I came, I have an idea of something I want to share, so I'm going to do brewer's cup. So that's in two weeks in Vancouver. And then after that, I'll go to Panama to source coffees. March is barista. And so if I do well and I win barista, then I would have to start planning to go to Worlds and, and figure all that out. Sometime between March and May, which is Worlds, the Jill will visit one of the people we're coaching. I'll visit the other one. There's a, there's a big coffee show in the States that I have to attend think there's some other ones. I also I also play music on the side, so there's a few there's a few gigs in there. So there there is a lot to do between now. I basically worked out between now and June, like beginning of June, there's at least a couple trips every single month. So it's kind of wild and then June I get a breather and then July is Stampede and I actually play in like a country band, so half of July is gone and so July and August is is where I'll sleep.
0: No doubt, you're gonna. You're probably gonna need that. <laughs> it's
1: gonna be a wild one. It's good I work in coffee, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, right on. Um, where can we send people to follow along?
1: Yeah, so there's the the both Monogram and myself are uh, on Instagram. So Monogram is Monogram Co. I'm Benjamin Putt uh, on Instagram. That's typically where I spend most of my time. Facebook has gotten too weird, so. <laughs> um, but mostly on our socials is the biggest thing. Uh, and then you might see me pop on other people's feeds as I start to coach and compete.
0: Awesome, well thanks so much, Ben. It's been incredible chatting about all this and and your insights on coffee and, and the culture and the people behind it and everything like that, so I really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me, good chat.
0: Thanks.